Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You got the distinct sense that this was going to be a big and bad event. This is A.C. Thompson. He's a journalist for ProPublica and Frontline who's been monitoring the racist right wing for a long time. In the summer of 2017, A.C. started seeing a lot of excited chatter online. Men messaging each other that they were going to bring weapons to a rally in Charlottesville. So A.C. and a colleague went to the campus of the University of Virginia on what was supposed to be the night of. And they waited around for the rally to start. We're sitting at this park, and we know that these people are supposed to start showing up. And they kept waiting. It's like approaching 9 o'clock. They're supposed to march at 9 o'clock. There's nobody there. Man, I think this is going to be like three Proud Boys. It's going to be a dud. Nothing's going to happen. These people are clowns. Like, look, it's 8.55, and nobody's here. And at nine on the dot, people started streaming into the park. And they were coming from all different directions. They lined up and queued up and got their torches and signs and everything else in a matter of moments. And I just thought, wow, um, these people are, are actually organized and they actually have their shit together. This is hundreds of people, and they are angry, but also they're, they seem happy, like that they're like glad to be meeting each other in the flesh, and that there's this sort of exuberance and um, joy mixed with this anger. And I was like, this is the kind of energy you have when people get killed and really bad things happen. It had been a long time since A.C. last watched Fight Club, but he agreed to watch it again before we talked. I had so many thoughts, but I think the thing more than anything that that stands out to me is that there's this whole theme about validation and finding yourself through dramatic, heroic action through spectacular violent action and finding some true you through that journey and i feel like so often the militia people i meet the white supremacists i meet the right-wing extremists that is very baked into their belief system that you need a few good men and it's always men 
to go do something spectacular and violent, and that this sort of valiant, heroic action is what the world is in need of. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. For the last four episodes, we've been talking about Fight Club, a book that became a movie that became like a virus in the culture, its influence mutating in unexpected ways. In this episode, we're looking at violence and masculinity, and we're going to talk about how Fight Club both epitomizes the dangerous link between the two and suggests a potential path out of the darkness. But first, we're going to talk about why we fight. Chapter 5. The Blueprint The turning point of Fight Club is this moment. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Up until now, Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden has just been a mysterious stranger. Now he's opening a door for the narrator into a different life. This is the point where Fight Club starts to work on you, the viewer. It's where you start to wonder, what would I do? It was such a direct articulation of something that I really didn't know was possible. Like, you can ask somebody to hit you? Lee Coward is the author of Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, a book about all the different ways people seek out pain deliberately and what that drive says about humanity. Lee danced ballet for 20 years beginning at age four. By the time they saw Fight Club, they knew plenty about elective pain. But they'd never seen it presented like this. There was something in that moment of the person themselves asking for pain that kind of worked as a light bulb moment for me. Like, I think it was the first time that I saw it so explicitly laid out like that, that masochism could be something that is not just like a personal Everest to climb, but it could actually be something that involves someone else. And it is, in a way, a romantic moment between them, right? Because mm -hmm. they can finally, they finally found the person who will give them the thing that they need. Yes. Yes. And what a human desire that is. Eventually, in that scene, Edward Norton does hit Brad Pitt. And the rest of the movie unfolds from that moment. But before he throws that first punch, they have this conversation. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you. Come on. Do me just one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that, that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? We asked almost everybody we talked to for this show those same two questions, the ones Tyler Durden asks the narrator. We wanted to know if there are really things you can't learn except by fighting. The thing is, there's not a lot of consensual fighting in real life. And when fights do happen, they're always kind of defined by their context, as is what you can learn about yourself by getting in one. Angelica, have you ever been in a fight? Oh my God, unfortunately, many times. Angelica Jade Bastion writer and film critic. Is there something you can learn about yourself only through being in a fight? Yeah, your anger problems. Also your limits as a person, like what you're really willing to not let fly. I almost got into a physical fight at a Beyonce concert um, during her formation tour. Not one of my finest moments. 
The first bar fight I was in, I was 19 years old and I was playing um, a cartoon dog in a very popular stage show. And I was in a bar in Toronto uh, with another cast member and there was some big burly dude that wouldn't leave her alone. And I just got involved. <laughs> Lee Cowart again. Dumb 19-year-old. Um, incandescent rage. Just like, just a fury that I had never felt before. It's wild the sensations that a brain can give you in a moment like that. Chuck Klosterman, have you ever been in a fight? Uh, yeah, I lost. Did you learn anything about yourself that you did not know prior to getting in the fight? Uh, well, I probably didn't need to get in a fight to know this, but um, if you're extremely drunk, don't fight sober people. <laughs> that is the main fucking thing I learned from that. And it's, it's weird because in some way it seems like it would almost be an advantage, like in billiards, but it, it's it's not. The one conclusion all this points to about fighting in real life as opposed to in the movies is that it seldom goes the way you're expecting it to. And yet movies and TV shows continually show us situations where somebody throwing like a well-timed roundhouse punch at somebody who deserves it changes everything. It's a thing the hero does. Cold cocks the bad guy, big cathartic moment, bad guy goes down, honor is defended, everybody cheers. In real life though, self-defense notwithstanding, if you're throwing the first punch, you have probably made a bad decision. Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Wow, dude. Most people dislike a fight out in the real world. Um, the aversion we have to taking part of them makes a lot of sense. You can get killed, you can kill someone, you can go to jail. Um, there's strong disincentives to being part of this. This is Jonathan Gottschall. You heard him at the beginning of our first episode talking about this exact situation. A moment out in the real world, in traffic, where he backed down from what could have been a fight. Jonathan was an English professor who'd come to believe that his life in academia was kind of a dead end. So, perfect Fight Club material. One day, he was looking out his office window and realized the former auto parts store across the street had become a gym, where guys were learning mixed martial arts. I could see the young men inside this cage and they're dancing around and they're hitting each other and they're tackling and they're rising again to dance some more. And I was struck by this powerful emotion. It was very, very unexpected. And the emotion was envy. I envied them. They seemed so alive and so brave inside their cage where it seemed like I was just rotting away. And I had this sort of funny, perverse thought, just an image of me over across the street inside that cage with those young men and my colleagues in the English department looking up from their volumes of poetry or whatever. And I thought to myself, well, that's how I'll do it. That's how I'll uh, get out of my rut in life. So he went across the street. And after 15 months of training, he finally stepped into the octagon for his first cage fight, which he lost in less than one minute. The longest 47 seconds of my life, though, there's this guy you don't know across the cage who's really trying to hurt you, 
And the focus that produces is so incredible. And he handled me so easily. And he handled me in front of this crowd of people who all saw it. My wife was there and she saw it. And for months afterwards, it was the last thing I thought about before I fell asleep. And it was the first thing I thought about when I woke up. Um, and it was because, in a sense, I had been unmanned. You know, I had been held down and forced to say uncle by this other guy. So that's what Jonathan learned from being in an actual cage fight. He learned what everybody learns in a fight, which is that fights are unpleasant disorienting, terrifying, and potentially humiliating. But Jonathan also spent a lot of time training for that fight. And he says that once he got over his socialized aversion to punching people, along with the pain and the fatigue that comes with training MMA, he started to really like what he was doing in that gym. In fact, I liked it more than I've liked almost anything in my life. It was like being a kid, roughhousing with your friends. The emotions aren't angry. The emotions aren't aggressive. The emotions, you know, you're not punching anyone in a spirit of meanness. It's a very rough form of play. How much body contact as an adult do you have with other men? Almost none. Almost none. This is constant body contact, constant body contact in the wrestling and all that stuff, but also constant body contact, just like, hey, putting your arms around each other, hugging each other patting each other, you know, loving on each other. This is what's fascinating and touching about Jonathan's book. Because, yeah, it's about fighting and the evolution of organized fighting and this intellectual guy who decides to commit to something totally foolhardy. But it's really about this. The kind of connection that Jonathan forms with the guys he's grappling with in that gym. And why he's not able to achieve that level of connection in his friendships that don't involve fighting. There is a sort of breaking down of barriers. Um, there's a real intimacy to it. It felt like, um, I don't know, that deep and platonic uh, same-sex friendships are possible. In Fight Club, the thing that makes Fight Club so powerful is that suddenly all these guys are connecting on that level. They're having this intense cathartic experience by fighting each other, but they're also having it by being a part of this organism, this hive mind that watches the fights. According to pain expert Lee Cowart, the endurance of pain of any kind, even just watching someone endure it, can create powerful connections between people. When you see somebody else's body moving in a way that you understand to be painful, you are able to kind of share an experience with them as an onlooker, even without having it. And witnessing someone access a different part of themselves can be, can be very powerful. And having someone else witness you doing something that maybe you were afraid of, maybe you didn't think you could do it, the group dynamic in that moment very much can be a driver of additional risk and additional sensation and often additional reward. We are hive apex predators, you know, we watch each other constantly. And being in a group can affect your pain tolerance. Lee says that Fight Club perfectly illustrates how that hive mind works and how the transcendent experience of pain can deepen those connections. I think there was a real release and catharsis happening in, in these basements where these fights happened. 
And, you know, there's this great shot in the movie and the person who just lost the fight, like, picks his head up off the floor and there's blood all over his mouth and he's just smiling, smiling like a fool. And I know what that feels like. (laughs) But then they also use that kind of fervent group dynamic to get all frothed up to go out and commit violence elsewhere to affect real destructive change in society. It's all fun and games and consensual pummeling until it's not. After the break, we'll talk about how that group dynamic can go wrong and how wrong it can go. So I, uh, I grew up in a pretty crappy childhood type of environment. Also dealt with some molestation issues for... Uh, a, a major point of my childhood. This is Chris Buckley. He's a former member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he's explaining how he became part of that group. Then I joined the Army, and, you know, I did 13 years in the Army. I lost a really close friend of mine, and, you know, I just spiraled. Uh, I got in an accident when I got out of the Army, um, broke my back, and got introduced to opiate painkillers. Uh, all the All the bad started to come back up. Just everything just kind of boiled to the top. And um, it just led me down a path of violent extremism and right-wing extremism. How does one actually get involved in that movement? It was almost as if it was waiting there for someone like you in that moment. I just remembered, like, I was just pissed off all the time. And I just looked down and I was like, well, fuck, man. I'm white. I better click up with the white guys. And uh, so I kind of... I was searching and uh, got online and was like, you know, how do I protect the white race, right? The most cliche statement you could ever put into a a Google search. And I started to dabble in that and got hooked really quick. I found everything that I was craving in one spot. I found camaraderie. I found a fight. And I found a way to be a part of something that, you know, was, was bigger than myself. In the clan, Chris also found a sense of community that didn't exist for him anywhere else. And sure, there are a lot of men in this country who live with childhood trauma and abuse substances and harbor bigoted feelings and struggle with loneliness and dick around on the internet and still don't end up becoming high-ranking members of groups like the KKK. But when you look at who does join up with the racist right in this country, you see a lot of stories like Chris's. Fundamentally, what you're talking about is that an atomized, highly alienated society where people are desperate for a community and they're desperate for a sense of meaning. This is journalist A.C. Thompson again. Most of A.C.'s investigative work is focused on understanding the people who join white power movements. When I speak to people that are members of these movements, I'm struck by their legitimate grievances and their legitimate sense of discontent and their sense that you know, look, uh, both political parties abandoned us. It's very hard to find your place in the world and find a sense of meaning and a decent living. And so they come to these groups, they come to the internet, they come to cesspools like 4chan or 8kun or whatever with real issues and real problems that I don't think anybody in American political life has been particularly good at addressing. 
And if this sounds familiar, it should. Because in a certain book-slash-movie, it's also the reason a certain group of guys with bullshit jobs start going down in a certain basement to wail on each other. And when Fight Club gives way to Project Mayhem and they all start committing these increasingly dangerous acts of vandalism, they hang out at Tyler's house afterwards, cracking beers and cheering when their handiwork shows up on the news. They're beginning to develop a sense of mission around what they're doing. Do you want to be the narrator on the plane going from one car crash to the next, stuffing a bunch of IKEA furniture in your condo, doing nothing but acquiring and filling out paperwork? Or do you want to be somebody that is given over to a, a higher calling, a real purpose? And I, I think like that, that is like a universal uh, need is to be engaged in something meaningful. And I think that's, um, it's a theme that's touched on in the film clearly. And it's a, it's a need that members of these groups have as well. Chris Buckley doesn't remember anybody in the clan watching any movies except D.W. Griffith's virulently racist 1915 epic Birth of a Nation, which portrays the clan as heroes. But A.C. Thompson says today's modern neo-Nazis are definitely influenced by Fight Club, which from their perspective is a movie about aimless white men who start out by beating each other up and gradually become an army that shakes the world. I've seen chats of neo-Nazis where they say, look, we're going to go have this hate training camp out in the desert and first night is fight club. We're all going to fight each other and we're going to get tougher from doing it. We're going to develop our skills that way. Um, I've definitely seen this as a pop culture reference amongst members of these groups. Do you think that it feels predictive when you watch a movie like this? Does it feel like it foreshadowed something about the turn we were going to take in the ensuing two decades or so? Yeah, it absolutely does feel now like in some ways this was a harbinger of what was going to happen in American life and American politics. Chris Buckley first saw Fight Club around the time it came out, when he was in high school in southern Ohio. He doesn't remember much about that experience, except a bunch of kids getting in trouble for starting their own Fight Club in the woods. So he watched it again before talking to us and was blown away by how closely it mirrored his experiences. Does Fight Club seem to you like an accurate depiction of the way an extremist movement works in the broad yes. strokes at least? Absolutely. And and all of it like falls right in line to like the perfect grooming and recruitment into a violent extremist group. I, I definitely think that Fight Club is a blueprint. Like, it's a map of how, how it happens. One of the biggest parallels, he says, was how Tyler plays on the insecurities of the men he recruits. Tyler was exploiting people's grievances to build his club or empire. There was a part where he, where he had spoke to the, uh, became a spokesman to the club about slaves to the system and working their whole life and it pisses them off and they're like the forgotten children. And like, that's kind of the way that the kids that show up in our group or our movements were feeling. Because grievances unresolved leave to this feeling of this justice craving. Like you have to react. So it leads to violence. Unresolved grievances lead to violence. I could really relate to pretty much everything throughout the movie. This is Arno Michaelis. 
He's now a writer and a motivational speaker, but he used to be a neo-Nazi skinhead. You met him back in the first episode of this series. Arno's work is now about helping people who want to do what he did and get out of the white power movement and other hate groups. I asked Arno to talk about how he and other people he knew in that movement defined masculinity. The masculine ideal of white nationalism was pretty much dead on what it was in Fight Club. You're, you feel no pain. You like violence. You're going to do whatever it takes. You know, fuck society. You make your own rules. You dominate society. Your mission and your job is to feel no pain, to, to commit whatever level of violence you need to commit to achieve the, the goals of your collective group. Arno says that one of the things that led to him getting out was watching the kids he'd brought along become violent in ways he'd never imagined. He was faced with the realization that he'd become someone else's Tyler Durden. My kind of ending thought on it was as the narrator's scrambling desperately at the end to stop Project Mayhem, I had that, that exact same feeling late in my days as a white nationalist. With, with these kids going out and doing things that turn my stomach. And, and, um, and I'm the one who set these kids off. And I'm just asking myself, like, what the fuck have you done? Like, what, what have you unleashed here? And, and that's something that, that uh, is going to haunt me till my grave, as it should. When you join one of these organizations, you're not just committing to the cause of white power. You're committing to a retrograde ideal of manhood and renouncing the values of a soy milk world. Gavin McInnes, founder of the Proud Boys, the all-male far-right group whose members allegedly led the charge on the Capitol on January 6th, said that he started the group in response to what he saw as, quote, a war on masculinity in this country. It starts in kindergarten and goes all the way up to adulthood. A.C. Thompson again. What I hear from people in these movements is they say, you know, being a man is under attack. I'm being told that I can't be the person that I want to be, that my way of life is not valued. And so in so many ways, what you see is like a reaction to that. I'm going to own as many guns as possible. I'm going to wear camo. I'm going to have a huge beard. I'm going to train in martial arts or boxing or whatever, and I'm going to get into violent altercations because all the things that make me a man and that I think are manly qualities are under attack. In Fight Club, Tyler Durden turns out to be a projection of the narrator's insecurities. He's the narrator's idea of a real man. I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. I am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not. Chris Buckley again. I think that growing up and feeling weak, feeling like neglected sexually abused i just felt really powerless but when i met the military recruiters and i got to see just how they carried themselves that was my first real thing that i looked up to like now this is a man this is what a man's supposed to be i in a way that was the start of me creating my tyler durden and over time you know, just like one day he's sitting in that airplane seat and boom, dude's next to him, you know? And then it's like, I just, one day I woke up and it was like, Hey, you're, uh, you're the second in command for the entire KKK. 
A.C. Thompson again. You have the radical right giving messages. This is how you live out your God-given manliness. This is how you live out your masculine identity, and it's under attack. By the way, the process that ultimately led to Chris Buckley leaving the Klan, it began when his wife went online and looked up how to get people out of hate groups and found Arno Michaelis, who worked on Chris for months until the day Chris agreed to hand Arno his Klan patch and broke the news to his imperial wizard. If all this tells us anything, it's that while men have an unparalleled ability to prey on each other's weaknesses, they may also be the only ones who can save each other. Jonathan Gottschall never fought another cage fight. That was always his plan. He assumed he'd dislike the experience of doing MMA, so he was going to train and fight one fight in order to write about it and then quit. But the truth is that it really got its hooks into me. I gave it up with great reluctance and only because my body had given out entirely and I just couldn't do it anymore. He ended up getting hip surgery and shoulder surgery, and that was the end of his combat sports career. I really had a few tough years afterwards because everything in life was so boring afterwards. Mike Tyson said, you know, after he gave up fighting, he's like, you know, life has just lost its color. After fighting, everything else is so boring. The narrator of Fight Club, by the way, says the same thing. After fighting, everything else in your life got the volume turned down. And there were a lot of things he missed about it, but part of it was about those guys he'd gotten so close to as they tried to beat each other up. One of the things that Fight Club really got right, I think, is this whole sort of male support group of the uh, Fight Club. And this weird environment of Fight Club where it seems like everything is pure aggression and meanness, but it's actually a kind of warm and loving and supportive environment. Gottschall had sought out fighting as a means to self-destruction, however metaphorical. He wanted to do something career-endingly ridiculous, but it led him to community and to human connections deeper than the ones he had with guys he knew from his quote-unquote real life. The story of Fight Club is a story about just how bad things can get when male bonding goes wrong. It resonates after more than 20 years because these days, so much of what's wrong with our society can be attributed to groups of angry, resentful men. The irony, though, the solution to many of those problems might be the same thing. Men getting together and building community with other men. What I find interesting is that a lot of the things that men will end up doing together it's just a, an excuse to spend time together, right? To me, like, sports is a love language for men, right? Liz Plank, a writer, filmmaker, and podcaster, is the only person in this show who has not seen Fight Club. She's not big on movie violence. But she's the author of a book called For the Love of Men, A Vision for Mindful Masculinity. So she's spent a lot of time thinking about men's emotional lives and the societal barriers that prevent them from making deeper connections and leave them isolated and vulnerable. When she was researching her book, one of the first things Liz did was take a trip to Washington Square Park in New York City with a friend, the therapist and podcast host, Esther Perel. 
And we sat at a table that said free advice for men from a woman. Uh, it was actually from two women, um, two for one deal. But what I really wanted to collect at the beginning was, was really data around, yeah, what questions did men have and what advice were they perhaps not allowed to seek? But every time a man approached the table, Liz also asked them a question. I asked them what's hard about being a man. And every man <laughs> looked at me like I'd ask them if unicorns can swim. In order to even think about it, Liz says, the subjects of her admittedly unscientific survey of New York men on this one day in the park had to get past their own sense as men that the difficulties of being a man weren't worth talking about. And when they did come up with answers, some of them answered the way you might imagine they would. They talked about expectation. How our idea of what it means to be a woman has evolved so much more and so much more quickly over the last few decades than our idea of manhood, which, best case scenario, is stuck in a kind of stoic, chivalrous historical twilight and about the conflicts that that can create, especially in relationships. But a lot of them also said the hardest thing about being a man was other men. Gender is not just a performance for the opposite sex and particularly for straight men, but it's also a performance, you know, to, to present yourself as masculine in front of other men is really important. And it wasn't just straight guys who struggled with the concept of masculinity. Gay men said that they're constantly scanning environments to, to, to really assess how dangerous or safe a space is based on how many, you know, hyper-masculine men are there or are in the space. And so there was a lot that was on men's minds. When it comes to the question of masculinity, Fight Club is, maybe appropriately, a story with a split personality. On the one hand, it portrays masculinity as this important, even spiritual thing that's being stripped away from men by consumer society. But at the same time, when the men in Fight Club find a way to get back in touch with their masculinity and really let it off the leash, it quickly becomes a destructive force. In part because the only person encouraging these men to be men the person who's feeding them a definition of masculinity is Tyler Durden, who is nuts. And in real life, as a society, when it comes to masculinity, we're in kind of the same boat. There are people having these difficult conversations about masculinity, but the people talking the loudest and the most confidently about what it means to be a man are people who maybe shouldn't be giving advice. People committed to outmoded ideas about manhood, these myths about power and strength. As a nation, we're held hostage by those myths. Ideas about dominance and weakness shape our politics. Misogyny leads to rape culture and sexual assault. We're prevented from doing anything to keep mass shooters from getting their hands on weapons of war because we have this myth in America, it's in all our fiction, about the good guy with a gun who comes along to save the day. And we don't want to make it harder for that hypothetical good guy to own and carry his gun just in case. And if you identify as a man and you live in this society, those myths and all that patriarchal damage shapes you. You can't avoid it. So maybe the only thing to do is confront it. I have a line in my book that says that masculinity is a lot like Fight Club. The first rule is that you don't talk about it. Liz suggests that the most important thing men can do to break the grip of traditional masculinity is to start talking about it. Taking accountability for perpetuating that cycle, but also acknowledging how it's impacted them. Doing a lot of the work that women have been doing for a long time, which is, again, being inquisitive and being interested 
in how we have been shaped by the culture that we live in. Who are the role models that I had as a kid? Who are the role models that I have right now? Who do I feel jealous of or envious of? Like doing that moral inventory, I think is, is a really good way to start. But the key to this is community. And really building intimacy and doing that work with other men So obviously, no matter how bad patriarchy is for men, it's still worse for literally everybody else. But that's kind of the point. Men taking responsibility for themselves and and for their own healing is, is really what this entire conversation around masculinity is really about. Either you keep going down into the darkness because you know it and it's a path that's comfortable, or you can go through, you know, something different, which is different and challenging and will mean you will have to face you know, your demons and vulnerabilities and weaknesses, because that's the only way you can overcome them. The good news is that if masculinity is ultimately a social construct, and regardless of any possible biological component, that's ultimately what it is, then men have the power to change how they view its importance, or let it go entirely. There are so many different interpretations of Fight Club, but no matter how you see it, it's always a story about pursuing an idealized self. The men of Fight Club go down in that basement to shed something that no longer serves them, something externally imposed, a fiction about who they're supposed to be. And no matter how you see that story, whether or not you think Tyler Durden's a cool guy, there's something hopeful about the idea that if we can just figure out how, we can burn away everything but who we truly are. It's the story of all human evolution. You have to break yourself apart. You have to face your fears. Ross Bell is one of the original producers of Fight Club. We have to do this to evolve. Face your fears. Break through. And if you can't do it because you've been so cemented in by society, then you've got to fight. The film will resonate for the rest of time, I believe that. It's not just going to live and die now because it's the story of all time. That time-honored theme of breaking a false self down to find out who you really are underneath it is one reason so many viewers still connect with Fight Club years after its initial release. We asked a few other people involved with the movie why they believe it stuck around. Original Fight Club screenwriter Jim Ools. I think it keeps resonating for subsequent generations who feel a numbness and an entrapment in what is available for them to be uh, in civilization as we know it now, and uh, they feel that rebellion against it. Former 20th Century Fox executive Kevin McCormick. They're just movies that come along periodically that look at a microcosm of American society, you know, and really capture that that sense of disconnection and feeling. I think it's been a little while since there's been a movie that visceral. Former 20th Century Fox studio head Bill Mechanic. It's a movie that showed what movies can be, which is not all things to all people, greatness had to quote my picture. It does not look like a copy of a copy. In the last 10 years, there's no movie that has a, has a POV as, as strong as this thing does. That's a picture with a brain. 
I mean, fuck, give me one of those. Fight Club cinematographer Jeff Cronenwith. It's a funny thing, like, uh, you know, I've shot a few more movies since then, and regardless where I find myself in the world, the first thing that anybody wants to talk about, and it doesn't matter the age group. I mean, I was just in New York yesterday shooting, and uh, these 25-year-olds come up on the set and go, I I just want to tell you, like, Fight Club's my favorite movie, and I'm like, wow, you you weren't even allowed to see it, you know, until just a few years ago. So it's amazing how it resonates. And here's something you can't really say about most controversial movies from the 90s. Fight Club is still dangerous enough to get censored in 2022. Earlier this year, it came to light that the version of Fight Club made available to viewers in China on a streaming platform owned by the Chinese entertainment mega conglomerate Tencent featured an altered ending. The narrator still shoots himself to kill Tyler as in the original, but before the buildings fall, the Tencent version cuts to a title card that reads, The police rapidly figured out the whole plan and arrested all criminals, successfully preventing the bomb from exploding. After the trial, Tyler was sent to a lunatic asylum receiving psychological treatment. He was discharged from the hospital in 2012. In an interview with Empire, David Fincher, who, needless to say, did not approve this ending, suggested that it was the result of Tencent overzealously interpreting a clause in its contract with the American studios which allowed them to make trims to avoid running afoul of Chinese censors. So there's now a discussion being had, Fincher said, as to what trims means. Classic Fincher, still arguing with the studios after all these years. Chuck Palahniuk pointed out a couple of this story's attendant ironies. He said that the outcry, which included a tweet from Human Rights Watch criticizing this as government censorship, was funny to him because his books have been banned all over this country. It's only an issue, he said, once China changes the end of a movie. He also noted that while Fincher's ending was more spectacular, befitting the visual medium of movies, the Chinese ending with the bombs unexploded and the narrator slash Tyler recovering in a mental institution was actually more faithful to the original novel. Chuck wrote his own sequel to the novel in comic book form in 2015. It's called Fight Club 2, and it's his most explicit meditation on the legacy of Fight Club in the real world. The narrator is now a heavily medicated suburban dad. He's married to Marla, who starts to miss her husband's wild side and tampers with his dosage, unleashing his alter ego Tyler on the world once again. Things get real meta. Chuck himself appears as a character, running ideas by the women in his kitchen table writing group. And when he tries to engineer a deus ex machina-type ending that kills off Tyler and his followers once and for all, an angry mob of Fight Club fans shows up at his door, refusing to let go of their hero. Chuck offers to give them directions to Neil Gaiman's house. The book floats the notion that in creating Tyler, Polinick has unleashed a sentient meme, a viral contagion destined to live forever in media. In the book, Polinick looks out at us from the page and says, Ideas are real, we are not. Then Tyler kills him. Chances are Fight Club 2 will never become a movie. But they probably wouldn't make Fight Club 1 today either. Everything the book is saying about male rage and disaffection and their potential consequences for society feels truer than ever. In so many ways, we're living in the world Fight Club predicted one that feels both too scary and too absurd to satirize. But even setting politics aside, 
It's also impossible to imagine a major studio today bankrolling a star-studded movie that depicts revolutionary violence against consumer society as cathartic, even thrilling, while leaving moral judgment up to the audience. That's what Fight Club did. That's the legacy. It threw the responsibility of interpretation back in our faces. Whether you saw anti-consumerism, mindless violence porn, homoeroticism, a phallic monument to male rage, a polemic about the necessity of blowing up phallic monuments, a leftist fever dream, a fascist MTV video, or a warning to the future, was up to you. Fight Club wasn't going to hold your hand and tell you what to see. These days, the studios are selling comfort and diversion, like movie studios always do in turbulent times. They're making reboots and superhero movies, which are reboots of comic books, reaching back almost longingly to stories from a time when it was easier to believe in those myths about good guys fighting bad guys and saving the world. Once again, Ross Bell. The studios have completely changed. The bill mechanics of the world don't run the studios now. You know, they're small divisions of big corporations, and it's all about the bottom line. A lot of good stuff has migrated to television where you have greater freedom. But films now are just widgets. They're just products to sell other goods. So if Fight Club was going to change the world, it didn't, and it didn't change the studios. Maybe it pushed them even further in the direction of being corporate consumer products. Dead ends. There's no sequel to Fight Club. There's no theme park ride. Not yet, but you never know. Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange is another movie about nihilistic young men running riot. When it came out in 1972, film critic Pauline Kael called it abhorrent, and Roger Ebert accused it of celebrating the sadism of its heroes, a Beethoven-loving psychopath named Alex and his gang, the Droogs. It was initially rated X for its sexual content, and its ultra-violence was invoked as a possible influence on incidents of real-life violence. Stanley Kubrick withdrew it from circulation in British theaters in 1973. 48 years later, the Droogs, who are owned by Warner Brothers Pictures, just like the Looney Tunes, turned up in a crowd shot in the corporate intellectual property jamboree that is Space Jam 2. They're standing right behind a robot version of basketball player Damian Lillard, hanging out with the Thundercats and the Scooby-Doo gang. Like I said, you never know. 20th Century Fox is now owned by Disney, and they own Disneyland. So Mr. Durden's wild ride is now a non-zero possibility. A haunted Paper Street mansion in the Magic Kingdom? Tyler Durden replicating virally in the same licensed character eternity as Spider-Man and Luke Skywalker, outliving Chuck Palahniuk, Brad Pitt, and probably you and me. What could be more messed up and therefore more perfect than that. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alec Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Theme music by Dan Leon. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. 
Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelin.